Ladies and gentlemen, welcome to the Talent Playbook Podcast. My name is Jason Ferrara. I'm the Chief Marketing and Strategy Officer at Outmatch and your host for the podcast. Our podcast focuses on strategies for transforming your world of work. During each podcast, we highlight someone who's transformed their organization or industry in a significant way. And today's guest is Chris Gardner, the Chief Technology Officer at Outmatch. So, you know, with full disclosure, obviously I work with Chris, but I wanted him on the podcast because he's such a great example of a business-focused and strategy-focused CTO. Uh, yeah, he cares about the technical aspects of the CTO job, but his main focus is making sure that our business runs efficiently and serves our customers effectively. In this podcast, you'll hear how an HR tech-focused CTO thinks an IT team should be run and the types of people that are best for that team. How the new GDPR regulations impact HR tech in the larger world. How a development team should be connected to the end user and the way that Chris does that with, with his team. And how he employs agile software development methodology, how he modifies those principles for outmatch. And we talk a little bit about broadening agile methodology out to other areas of a business, not just the technology team. Chris has a big job and that job covers a lot of ground. And he tells us in some pretty rich detail about that job and all the things he does. So because of that, I think you'll really enjoy this conversation with Chris, enjoy his insight. So without further delay, Here's the Talent Playbook Podcast with Chris Gardner. Hey, Chris, thanks for joining the podcast today. Appreciate it that uh, that you're here and willing to uh, willing to talk. Absolutely, thanks for having me on. Sure. So, what I'd like Thank to you. do for our listeners first is have you describe your job and how long you've been doing this job, just so they get an understanding of of you and your skills and your role. Sure. Uh, let's see. I'll start with the easy one. I've been doing this job for six, a little, little over six years now um, here at Outmatch. And what I'm responsible for here is uh, everything associated with Outmatch's technology delivery. Um, I tend to think about that in three, three main ways, I guess. Um, we're responsible for developing new products. Um, and our solutions or new features for products that we that we already offer. Um, once those products are delivered, we have to uh, support them, maintain them, um, operate them for our customers uh, in our production data center environments. Um, and then the last thing is we, we need to host an infrastructure uh, and operate a, a secure, you know, computing and networking environment for both the, that production infrastructure as well as our our pre-production environments and our back office, which is basically all the different computing environments that we have just to, to do our jobs at Outmatch. And um, uh, so all of our employees can do their jobs to deliver services to customers. So those kind of three pillars are the things that uh, I think about every day and the, and the IT team here at, at Outmatch is responsible for. And then, um, I have a kind of a newer role, which is data privacy officer, which I is kind of ancillary to to my job um, as the privacy landscape um, 
globally has evolved. That's become a big need for our business. And uh, especially with GDPR coming out, that's been a focus of mine as well. And in that role, really responsible for our privacy policy, uh, the processes and, and other policies we have to secure data for our customers and our end, end users of our product uh, and any, any work around that. Cool. So it's not, yeah, it, it completely makes sense to me, um, mainly because I work with you every day. But um, I, I, so a couple of, couple of follow-up questions to that. One, one is just give us a, a brief um, explanation of GDPR. I think some listeners might know exactly what that is and, and some might not. So just give us a quick update there, if you would. Sure. Yes, the GDPR is stands for the General Data Protection Regulation. It's a it's a regulation in the European Union that just came about uh, earlier this year. The law took effect, and the, the European Union had prior to that law taking effect a, a guideline. It was called a General Data Protection Directive, which really goes. Uh, it was a it was treated more as a guideline for each individual EU member state to to set laws in their own countries that were somewhat consistent with that larger guideline. And these are laws around the protection of EU residents' personal information. And this year, the, the law went into effect that really unified that across all of the EU. So instead of all the different member states having their own individual laws, now there's just one law, which is actually a really good thing for all of us in in industries that do process any sort of personal information or personal data of an EU resident because it helps us really know that there's only one law that we need to pay attention to instead of the many laws of the many EU member states. So the law is designed to protect um, individuals' personal data and to give them some rights when it comes to that data uh, around how that data can be used, how they uh, provide consent to use the data that they they do submit for, for uh, to companies uh, for processing and for use, and their ability to kind of revoke those rights, um, take that data back to know what data a company might have on them, because sometimes it, it gets a little unruly if, if if companies can accumulate lots of data over time, uh, they can move that data from one company to another in certain circumstances. And they can request that it all be purged and, and removed from a company's system uh, if they would like. So that's the general sense of it. Um, there's a lot of discussion, obviously, right now in, in different industries. The social media space is probably the biggest one uh, where these regulations are going to, you know, they're in some ways already transforming how, how those businesses have to operate. And is that just uh, in the... In the EU, does it have implications in the U.S. or, or you know, China or Japan or any other country around the world? Yeah, it, it definitely does. That's a great question. It, all of, all of the, you know, the, the, I guess the internet makes the world a very small place when yeah. it comes to personal data. <laughs> so, uh, European residents' information uh, can certainly be processed by. A company in any geography, so it absolutely applies to, say, Outmatch as a, a as a U.S.-based company. 
and it, it would apply equally as much to companies in Japan or any of those other regions that you mentioned. It really doesn't matter where in the world your company does business if you if you uh, pull the data in and process the data from uh, a European uh, Union resident, then the law applies to you as well. Yeah. So you weren't uh, born knowing this information. So how long? How long? How long <laughs> did you? How maybe you were? I don't know. You're pretty good with it. Um, how long were you? You know, did you have to study up on this? Where did you learn about GDPR? I mean, obviously, to to execute that across the the outmatch technologies, you, you have to be pretty familiar with it. So how did you get all that, all this knowledge about it? Yeah, a lot of reading. It, it's, you know, it's not the most exciting subject for most people necessarily, but it's an important one. So uh, a lot of it was reading and research, uh, definitely attending some, you know, I went and attended some, uh, uh, I don't know, webinars and other uh, in-person kind of conferences conference related type of sessions to give uh, information. And then we engaged with third parties here at Outmatch that helped us learn more about our requirements under the law and to do readiness and risk assessments so that we could identify places where we were totally prepared and ready to go and in other places where we needed to do some shoring up. And, and through that process, I really learned a, a ton about the law, probably more than I really thought I would have to know, but um, I, I do have to say, I think it's been valuable exercise to go through and especially watching it now take effect and watching some of these other larger companies that process tons more data react to it. It's it's kind of good to understand how it works. So that's that's actually been beneficial. Yeah, and and you know we do have resellers another in in European countries, right? So they're looking at us to for help. They have to they have to be a part of this law, right? So they're looking to us to to conform with the law, right? Certainly, resellers and then and then our customers and, and our prospects are really asking a lot of good questions. You know, I spend time with them either during the sales process or after uh, the you know, after the law's taken effect an existing customer, just as we went through that readiness, they're also going through their own internal uh, processes and procedures to see, do they have, are they affected by this? What kind of data do they have? And uh, especially the global companies, really, you know, large global corporations or those with a big EU presence are really diving into this in, in, in detail. And then they'll have questions certainly for us because they're the, even though it's a very small amount of data that we do process that, you know, we're a part of a larger HR business process that may involve uh, more data. So they're, as they're mapping those processes out, they have to understand each of their vendors and what data they process and how that's all stitched together so that they, if they have to react to one of these individual rights management requests from an end, you know, data subject, any resident that they can, um, properly process for that and, and they have to make sure they have a, a legal basis to to actually process the data that they're collecting, uh, all those things. So I'd say our customers are also getting very well versed in, in the law um, and how it affects them, for sure. Yeah, you, you I, I just, I'm making notes here while we talk, you brought up a, a number of different things I want to follow up on because it's super, super interesting about, about not only this law, but your job and that sort of thing. So you, you mentioned that this type of stuff comes up in the, 
in the sales process. And I, I want to get back to the idea that you're the chief technology officer at Outmatch and, and you you just listed out three things that are really your, your core functions there, right? Uh, building new products and features, uh, supporting and maintaining those, and then and then hosting that infrastructure. And nowhere in those three things did you mention the sales process, but you just talked about your involvement in the sales process. So I'd, I'd love to talk a little bit about the the CTO role and its its um, its use in the sales process and what, what how your and what your involvement in the sales process really looks like. Yeah, I'd say it's it's a mixture. Most of the time when I'm involved in in sales, it has to do with two things. Um, I would lump that privacy into a larger discussion around security. Um, mm -hmm larger enterprise customers, which we work with uh, regularly, often have um, teams of people who, whose job it is is to assess the security uh, of any new vendor that they're coming on, if data that they're bringing on, if, if data is going to be processed. So they're very, um, they're very good at asking a series of kind of prescribed questions that they have for all of their vendors um, I'll often get involved in, in conversations in the sales cycle with those people that are in charge of kind of articulating the risk or assessing the risk of a new vendor um, and answer questions about our security uh, and our, our data uh, protection that we have here at Outmatch just to, to put their minds at ease or help mm -hmm. them follow through with that process. That's one category. Another big category uh, where there are often a lot of questions, our customers, because we're, we're most often dealing with the recruiting side of the business or the selection side of the business, and we're doing that in high volume. So maybe they have, most of them have applicant tracking systems that they use to, to manage the high volume of applicants that they have and, the, and where, who's at what stage of their recruiting workflow it helps quite a bit that our software integrates in mm -hmm. fairly seamlessly with, with those applicant tracking systems. So the candidate experience is very uniform. Uh, they don't really realize that they're moving from system to system. Uh, they just consider the application and the assessment kind of all part of one, one larger workflow for the candidate. And then similarly for the recruiter who's working in that system, they can access the reports that we produce uh, on candidates um, through directly inside the ATS. So that's an, what we call an integration mm -hmm. between our system and an applicant tracking system. And there are often questions about that experience or um, we might work closely with a new applicant tracking system. If it's one that we haven't integrated with before, we may have a conversation in a, as part of a pre-sales or a sales discussion around the compatibility of the two systems um, and how we would integrate them together. Those are probably the two biggest um, biggest times that I'm involved, as well as at, in the, at the contract stage, I guess would be the third time, is that, that there'll be then, when it moves to a contract, there'll be uh, you know insertions or red lines on a contract in certain mm -hmm. cases, and uh, anything related to data security mm -hmm. or privacy or the GDPR, any of those areas, those are my responsibility to review and make sure that that, that, that we're all going to be able to agree to the terms in the contract. Yeah. 
So um, you're not, I know you're not a one man gang. Uh, so <laughs> tell me a little about your team, because I think also the things that you're describing are, uh, I mean, obviously it's, it's a lot, it's a broad scope of responsibility, but the things you're describing also require specialization in and of themselves. So tell, tell us a little bit about the team that you manage and, and I'll, you know, I'll try to pull all this back together in, in one bigger question, but I, I'm interested to know now, like, What's the team look like that you manage? Yeah. How, do you, how do you get all this work done? Well, it's a great team. We have uh, probably 20, 25 people right now in inside our IT organization here at Outmatch. So it's a it's a large percentage of, of the company in terms of the, the technology yeah. investment that we make in our products, which makes sense for a, a SaaS business like we have. Mm-hmm. Um, out, we're really divided largely uh, right now along the same three lines that I mentioned at the top of our discussion. So development of new products and features, there is a, a segment of the IT organization that's in charge of that. So that, that consists of uh, developers. Uh, those are people who are actually writing code. It consists of business analysts and project managers that are in charge of gathering requirements and presenting those to a development team so that they can create the new feature or function and keeping that team moving. Uh, It would consist of quality assurance team members who test after that code is written. They test that the the product is working properly or those requirements were met properly. Um, That's that's kind of what we consider a product development team. And we have a a few of those that, that run uh, to develop new products and features. Uh, then we have a couple teams whose responsibility is that, that to take that finished product uh, and deliver it or operate it out in our production environment for our customers and to provide closer support uh, for those customers on a, a day-to-day basis. We just choose to segment that way. Not every IT organization does, but mm-hmm. we divide that line so that our product development team can focus on new features almost 100% of the time. And then that delivery and support team takes receipt of that code that's finished and they deploy it to production. So it's out there and it's working in our, our end environment for our customers. And then as our customers are using it, if they have questions or if there's a problem report that needs to be investigated, or they, there's a more hands-on communications with end customers or with partners like the applicant tracking system partners mm-hmm. we have, we mm-hmm. mentioned a minute ago, that team of people is really responsible for interfacing with them. So they're kind of keeping the lights on and keeping, keeping everything running properly day in and day out for the released code. So, and then the last team we have is, oh, sorry, go ahead. Nope, no, finish your thought, thanks. Yeah, the last team we have is that infrastructure team which is a, a team of people whose job it is to just make sure that all of our compute infrastructure, the, the networking, so I'm talking about all of our servers and everything that really, where we host all the, the software mm-hmm. day in, day out, um, they maintain that, database administration, all our backups and the security, all our firewalls, everything that protects the environment and keeps it up and running day in and day out. That's what we call our infrastructure and that's our infrastructure team that keeps that 
that stuff running smoothly. Those are the three kind of teams of people that we have. Um, and then and I, I have a, in each of those major disciplines, architecture, quality assurance, project to program management, infrastructure, uh, I have a, a lead that that helps run those specific areas uh, and, and constantly improve on, on how those teams of people are, are working together. Got it. How, um, okay, so so how do you and the rest of your team, and if you're you're responsible for building and delivering the software that the people who hire other people um, use, so how do you and your team stay connected with the customer, right, or, or in, and the issues in the market? Mm -hmm. So I know you you just described a, a certain group of people within on the team who do that, but I mean, presumably a developer has to understand what they're developing and, and what the customer wants in order to do that successfully. So how does your team stay connected with the customer? Yeah, that's a great question. So we do that through a couple means. Um, the, primary, the primary means that we have for that is through our product management function here at Outmatch. Um, our product management team doesn't sit directly inside of technology. They are an independent you know, group outside of technology, but we work with, with that team extremely closely. And that team's job is really to keep their finger on the pulse of the market, uh, whether it's new sales and new opportunities and what we're hearing from those prospects, those potential customers in terms of their needs and how those needs might you know, cause our, our platform to evolve, or it could be other innovations that they're seeing in the market or in our industry that um, we want to explore. Could be talking to current customers about their problems and, um, and what, what how those problems could lead to opportunities for us to offer solutions. I really look to that, that team to coalesce input from all those different sources mm -hmm. into a roadmap, what we call a roadmap, product development roadmap for mm -hmm. our, our offering. And obviously we have people in, in leadership roles in, in sales and, and in customer success and, and account management. So those people are, are really experts in what is happening day in and day out. And they're providing that input to the product management team is really the one team that I look to, 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 again, to coalesce and bring all that together into a vision for how the, how the platform needs to evolve uh, from a capabilities perspective. Yeah. They're how, our first source there. How typical is, is this structure? So the structure you describe with on the, on the IT team and the product management team, how typical is that structure among, among SaaS companies? That's a good question. I, you know, all the roles that I mentioned within an IT organization like development and QA and an infrastructure team, those are always there. They're typical. Sometimes, you know, in a very small company, you might find that some of those roles are, you know, people are wearing multiple hats and they're fulfilling, um, you know, I've, I've heard very, very small companies, you know, of course, where Maybe they don't have a formal QA team, quality assurance team, but but there are people who are 
testing every release because they're all huddled around the laptops before release and and that's their job for the day right? yeah yeah in, in in larger companies or as you have larger and larger customers enterprise customers i think the expectation shifts quite a bit in terms of the quality of the product and um the uptime and and, and other things and, and you, though that begins to become a more formal uh formal role as well as other roles that we have so i think for a company our size and certainly the customer base that we that we service, uh, we have we have all those typical IT disciplines represented, and that's a pretty common thing. Um, not every not every organization might choose to to kind of think about it in those three pillars that I and our team have kind of self organized ourselves into mm -hmm. uh, to be most effective. And certainly, even but we didn't always operate this way here at Outmatch. Um, uh, we weren't always organized exactly that same way. So that's kind of evolved how the teams are organized to, to get that work done and to stay focused in those particular areas is definitely something that evolves over time. And I wouldn't be surprised if, as we continue to grow, if that doesn't shift again you know, yeah. someday, who knows? Yeah. Uh, okay, so let's talk a little bit about how you how you got into this field, right? I mean, I'm, I'm looking at my notes and you've got like this technical aspect of either developing code yourself or managing people who do, right? Managing a, a large team. So you got to understand personnel management and understand a process and do research and learn and think about strategy. And these are all like each, each one of these things could be a separate discipline. So how, how did you get started in this in this line of work, you know, how did you, when you, was it college? Was it before that? Was it always something you wanted to do? Tell us a little bit about that. Sure. Yeah. I, I fell into it a little bit. Um, frankly, my background is engineering, mechanical engineering, not mm -hmm. computer science. <clears throat> and, uh, my first job, I wasn't doing anything related to software really. Um, I was a process engineer, uh, in a microelectronics factory which is another story, but it was very much, we were building hardware, yeah. uh, not software. And, um, but one of, one of the jobs that I had there was to try to make each a step in that assembly, that manufacturing process as efficient as possible to keep the cost down, um, have that process go as fast as it could and to be as high as quality as possible. Mm -hmm. That would mean that kind of each each component that went through this factory would you know you'd increase your chances of success that it would get through defect free 100% of the time and or you know as much as possible and that kept your cost down and improve the yield and one of my jobs there was to model that and predict how a new design would would affect the cost right if you what, what parameters about a de the design of these microelectronic components might be lower quality or trigger higher defect rates or be more time consuming to produce? How could I predict the cost of this as it went through the factory? And I started modeling uh, a lot of the parameters that we figured out affected cost or quality. I started modeling that in, first it was spreadsheets and mm -hmm. I kind of worked my way up to tinkering around and figuring out, okay, how could I build some software that could be used to do this? Mm -hmm. And that's when I realized 
I really enjoyed software because it was considerably faster to, to see, to build something and to kind of ask a program to do something than it was to build a piece of hardware. Yeah. <laughs> um, yeah. 3d printing. That's a little bit different today, but you know, right. um, that wasn't always available. And, right. Exactly. It certainly wasn't back, back then. So I always felt it was really cool that, um, you know, you could, tell the software to do something and it would immediately do it. You could change something if you didn't like it or if it was not working properly, you make a quick change and it's, it's working again. I've since learned that it takes a long time to build software, but <laughs> uh, that was what attracted me to it. Right. And, uh, and that, and I went from there to just uh, uh, kind of lucked out to um, be able to use some of, some of the project management skills that I had and other things at, my, at that process engineering job at a startup. And that was a SaaS, that was a, not a SaaS business necessarily, but it was a um, kind of a business process outsourcing business mm -hmm. that was a heavy, had a heavy software component. And from there I was able to, to move into the software side of things and the software management, yeah. team management side. So it's kind of how I fell into it. Wow, that's, luck. That's, that's that's cool. Thanks for thanks for describing that. So, like, if you were to yeah. de describe a, a day in the life today, I mean, are you, you know, do you have active decisions in all these areas of the business, or is it, you know, you find yourself really thinking about and working on specific things? What's that? What's that day in the life look like for you? Yeah, yeah, I I'm pretty lucky in in that respect. I think because I. Most days, my day is very diverse in that I I do spend I, I do get to touch on a lot of those different areas uh, in the course of a given day. Um, my days are pretty packed with meetings or discussions. I'd say a typical week is seventy five percent meetings, maybe. Mm. Um, but there there's such a large number of simultaneous activities going on both inside of IT um, where we're having, you know, with, with any of those three disciplines, we're often uh, working with product management, as I mentioned, because not only are we worried about the software that we're building today or the features or functions that we're building today and how we doing executing on those, but we're also planning for the next thing um, because we, and this is probably my process engineering background, but in my manufacturing background, but I think of our, our team, especially the, the part of our team that's responsible for new features as, as a bit of an assembly line and they need requirements. They need to know kind of what, what, what are these new features that the product management team is thinking of and prioritizing that has to be taken from a back of the napkin idea into something that can be understood um, ultimately that can be understood technically in terms of how we're going to approach building that. And there's quite a few steps in between to take it from conceptual, you know, design to, yeah. to actual real design and, and production. So that's a lot of my time. Um, you know, my days begin with most usually, usually begin with a standup, um, which is a meeting that's kind of a ritual meeting that you have in, an, in a software development environment like ours, where 
everything that's getting worked on. There's a rep, there's one or more representatives from each of those different teams that I mentioned in that meeting, and um, they're kind of giving a status of what happened yesterday, what's happening today, are there any blockers, which is the biggest thing I'm concerned about. Mm -hmm. If there's something that's preventing progress, then we need to get that cleared as quickly as we can so that they can be back up and running. Yeah. Uh, so that's how we kick the day off. And then after that, it's it's a host of other things. And then again, I could be working with customers uh, or sales support or uh, any number of other kind of more strategic things um, during the day as well. Yeah, you know, I've I've spoken with lots of people about starting a day with a stand up, and and my my team does that as well. It's just such a um, it's a, first of all, I think it's a great way to get grounded in in the day, but it's also a great way to like you talking about blockers. You know, they're just things you don't see unless someone brings them up. Um, I'm sure that's a big a big part of what you and your team talk about, right? Making sure that there aren't blockers and how to deal with the ones that that crop up. Yeah, it's, it's, you know, that and that and kind of the readiness or preparedness. So in these meetings, we can look and then in, in other meetings, we can look out ahead and see what work is coming and what is the state of that work? Mm. Uh, is that work ready to be consumed by the team or is it not in terms of like defining a requirement? Um, so it, it's quite helpful that yeah that's, that stand up is so helpful because if um if there's something that it's literally like a, a wrench in the machine if there's a blocker the whole team can't proceed at times if it's significant enough and we need to stop and figure out how to get them back up and running as quickly as we can otherwise it throws off <laughs> a lot of progress and they're setting their own goals each each week we, we we have the units of work called sprints where, you know, it's a fixed period of time. They want to get as much done as they can. The team sets goals at the beginning of every sprint and they want to hit those goals. And, and so it's our job to kind of help them as much as we can uh, to, 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 to help them succeed there for sure. Yeah. So, so concepts like stand up and um, use the word sprint, right? I, I would define those as, as terms, uh, agile software methodology terms. So, do, exactly. you, do you does your team subscribe to agile software methodology um do you you know is, is that something that everybody understands do you try to get other teams and within the company to to think about that How, what, what do you do with agile yeah so it's a little bit uh let's say of a hybrid version for the most part i, I would consider us agile yeah mm -hmm. that's, you're absolutely right those are agile terms and kind of quote-unquote rituals that go with the agile development process um, the different teams that we have, those product development teams, uh, definitely work in an agile manner. Um, then as you move into the customer support and deliver that uh, delivery support type of a role, mm -hmm. we begin to shift out of agile a tiny bit into a little bit different methodology. What I'd say in general that I love about Agile and some of some of the related development methodologies is that they're very malleable. You really don't have to follow them to the letter of the law or the someone's published kind of definition or what mm -hmm. a book says. And that's very much part of our kind of culture as a team is we try to improve on how we work together if 
if we see an opportunity to do it just a little bit better. So I'd say we're grounded in Agile for sure. That was that was how we kind of got our start. But uh, we, we've taken the parts that work well for us and, and use those. The parts that don't work great, we definitely have modified. Um, I'd say we do maybe more than a lot of other pure agile shops, we, do, we still do a little bit more work up front in terms of requirements gathering and, and that massaging that, that I talked about earlier to make sure that we're really prepared for the team to go quickly than maybe a pure play agile, agile shop might do. Mm -hmm. um, that may be one important difference. I, I will say you asked about other parts of the organization, you know, even outside of IT, yeah, there's definitely, like you mentioned, that's great to hear that your team does a stand-up. You know, I, I think that these are, they're designed to be quick, 15 minutes. Mm -hmm. Some, the larger the, the larger the group, we do kind of a group of groups. <laughs> so ours takes a little longer at times, um, especially if there's blockers or things, decisions that need to be made. But, you know, I just think that is every single team in the company or in, in it, almost any business could take advantage of some of those practices yeah. just to be more successful. Um, so you definitely cherry pick the things that work well for you, but that's a great way to be informed and in touch about what's going on uh, across your organization quickly. Yeah. And in, in order to get out of making decisions sometime, I just tell people I'm delaying decisions as long as possible, you know, and, and, and drawing on <laughs> the principles of Agile just to, <laughs> to give myself some more time yeah, to figure it out. Yeah, <laughs> the last possible moment to right. yeah, make that decision. Yeah, yeah. there's a, there's yeah, a policy exactly. behind it. Yeah, a framework. Um, <laughs> so, so let's talk a little bit more about um, your team. So what are the kinds of people, you know, the people who are most successful on your team, what what are their characteristics? What are they like? What do you want to see in an employee that that you hire for your team? That's a good question. There's cert there certainly is going to be in an in the technology space a certain amount of technical skill that's required and depending on the role that's being played, right? And um, uh, so if you take uh, a developer, they're going to have to have skill in coding and the languages that we that we need to understand. Um, we don't code in just any syntax, you know, like most companies, we try to narrow it down to mm -hmm. uh, a standard set so that um, everyone can speak the same language and execute that way. Right, right. Um, we have a few, a few of those, but those skills are important. Um, or if it's, uh, you know, let's take quality assurance, you know, there's skill sets there in terms of how to look at a set of requirements and really understand how to test that uh, very thoroughly to make sure that it meets the requirement. Because sometimes these requirements are spelled out um, and it's very clear that, you know, what you need to test, but then there's often kind of hidden conditions or maybe some edge cases or what we might call negative testing, where you're really trying to um, kind of take a path through the application that you don't expect a user to take and, and make sure it works. So a great tester is really going to be able to think through mm -hmm. a lot of different scenarios and how to design a effective set of tests to, to be sure that the application is going to work properly. 
in each of those cases, I'd say those are kind of domain specific skills that that everybody has to have. It's not unlike any other other job out there. I'd say past that, the things that you know I really look for that differentiate super successful employees are you know they're a little along the lines of the values that we have, right? Believe it, own it, improve it, improve mm -hmm. it are our values. But really looking for people with this insatiable desire to solve a problem who kind of have a natural curiosity about how something works mm -hmm. um, or should work. And they're, they're really not going to let go until they get that problem solved. Right. Just like the problem gnaws at them yeah, yeah. <laughs> until, until it's resolved. Um, and they're constantly striving to improve. So if maybe they're just, a little bit dissatisfied not in a negative way really but there's you know they're always kind of thinking there's a little bit better job that we could have done there we could have done this a little faster we could have done whatever you know those are the people that are really driving the rest of the organization to improve mm -hmm. um they're really committed and and own it that those are the things that that really differentiate the most successful people in my mind um in in the company we have this 1% improvement kind of mantra that that we use sometimes, especially myself and people, my directs, which we got from, I think the French Olymp or French cycling team or some mm -hmm. article I read a long time ago, which is really interesting, which is, you know, they really didn't set about to, to break records or to shatter records in any one one performance it was about a series of very tiny improvements over time that compound to really improve the performance to the the team overall and that struck a you know that resonated with me and um something that that i like to see people thinking in that way like how could we tweak this and make it just a little bit better yeah yeah, that's a that's a great concept, right? It's pro it's not you're probably not going to find the you know you you lift up the cover and you find the thing that improves performance fifty percent. You lift up the cover and you find exactly. the thing that does you know a series of one percent improvements, and the next thing you know, you're at a critical amount. Uh, that's exactly yeah. the philosophy. Yep. Yeah. Um, very cool. Very cool. Uh, so let's let's talk a little bit about um, metrics. So. You know, everybody has certain metrics to run their business. What are the what are the key metrics you look for, uh, you use to run, you know, your part of the business and the kinds of things you want to understand about the company that you work with? Yeah, the, it's funny. I'd say two of the three. There there are definitely metrics that we're using that are IT specific. Um, and I can talk about those that the the ones that maybe don't occur to everybody that are that aren't IT specific, but certainly other parts of the business would think are important. Maybe they don't realize that there are also important IT for, for me or like our revenue or our monthly recurring revenue in the case of our business and our customer retention. Mm -hmm. The reason why those two are so important is they, you know, coming back to part of our conversation earlier, those things are driving uh, to a large degree, the, 
they, they don't just tell us about the health of our business and our current offering, but they're going to shape our decision making on the future of our product. Mm -hmm. Right. Mm -hmm. So, um, you know, we're obviously trying to grow a healthy business. If if we if our revenue is increasing and we're retaining customers, that means we're doing the right things to help them solve their problems, and that involves our products and our technology. So we want to keep going down that path. So those metrics, while they're not directly related to IT uh, in, in every case, and in, in some cases they certainly are, um, but that, that those are definitely like leading indicators of where the technology is headed, products are headed, which are gonna shape what we're working on and when. So those are two important metrics that I'd say metrics that are more specific to IT and how we're executing, uh, you know, one of the biggest indicators of how we're doing is our velocity. We, mm. we call it our velocity, which is the speed that, again, this work is getting completed. Um, so when we talked about a sprint, which is an agile term, and a sprint is a set period of time. Ours are two weeks long where we're going to commit uh, to doing a certain amount of work on a project. That work is measured in points. Mm -hmm. um, you know, well, points are really tied to requirements and the size of requirements. And when we decide we're going to take on, say, you know, X, some arbitrary number of points um, in that sprint, then we're going to want to measure, uh, watch our actuals and see, okay, how, you know, we said we would do this much in two weeks. That was our goal, but those blockers came up and we had to punch through them or we had no blockers and you know what, this ended up being easier than we thought. So our velocity was Y on that particular sprint. And looking at those numbers over time, you get a good sense of uh, kind of this, the throughput that you have in the organization or mm -hmm. on a particular team. And that really helps us predict more when we have a new feature being requested or maybe it's a major initiative and we're doing some work to try to estimate how long it's going to take. We can use some of that velocity data to, to help us predict when we'll be complete with an initiative or uh, how long we might expect it to take to get, to get the work done. And that's important, obviously, because we need to make commitments to customers, uh, give them an idea of, of when these products are going to be available, or we're working with other parts of the organization on launching this or rolling this out to customers. You know, there's a whole series of events outside of IT that go into a product launch or a feature launch, as you well know. Yeah. And that, uh, you know, knowing when that's coming is important. Yeah, very cool. I love the idea that you're using um, business metrics. I, I mean, I've you know spoken with CEOs who who look at that recurring revenue and customer retention, and I love the idea that that's those are those are part of the metrics you use from an IT perspective too. You're right; they're the leading indicator of of uh, use of the product, right, and what we should do. Right. Very good. So. Um, what what do you think you know you've been you've been you said you've been here at at Outmatch for six years um, before that you know you described some other jobs so over your career what do you what's the biggest change that you've seen in your career change like change in what way 
Oh, just change in either how you do your job or change in the types of companies that exist or change in the industry in general. What sticks out to you is like, wow, that's that change is remarkable that it's happened in my lifetime or happened in my career. Well, I mean, our whole, this sounds silly, I guess, but I guess it's off the cuff, but you know, our whole business and, and so many businesses today, the whole world is, is built around the internet. Right. Yeah. And that really evolved in my, you know, I make, makes me seem really old, I guess, <laughs> but that really evolved in, in our time. So yeah. when software, when I was working with software in the job that I mentioned before, there was very little SaaS software. Everything was installed software that, you know, you might sell it to a company, but it was going to be installed on premise at their facility and you sold kind of more shrink wrapped software nothing was SaaS based. Um, and that, you know, running that way has a host of problems uh, and challenges that are different in some ways from running a kind of a cloud or SaaS-based business. So um, that that's kind of simplified the problem, I mm -hmm. think, a lot mm -hmm. is, is running it in the cloud. It's been very transformational to to run there. I think building software too, the, the you know, the just the amount of knowledge, if you're in in the technology space today, you know, the amount of knowledge that's at your fingertips in terms of other people who have encountered problems that you're encountering, uh, whether it's a, you know, how do I make this work in, in this kind of environment or how do I write this piece of code so that I get this functionality or mm -hmm. I've got this firewall change I need to make and I need to know, you know, everything is available online it's it's a matter of actually sorting through it to find kind of the the right source of that information when yeah. you can trust and and then and then some good advice but there's just no shortage of of information for technical professionals to go to 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 seek out which in some ways there's some thinking about it you, you asked me who's successful today and who's not you know anyone can google how do I solve such and such a problem technically? Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Um, so, you know, when you're hiring and you're really trying to figure out how to separate kind of really good people from, from maybe mediocre ones, you, you really have to take them out of that environment and, and really kind of use techniques to assess their knowledge and experience that don't involve, you know, somebody's just ability to search for a solution. Yeah. Right? Yeah. Right. <laughs> Right. Yeah. It's, there's more, there's more intelligence needed than just the ability to search, right? Anybody can do that. Yeah, for sure. But it certainly is available and it's helpful. And obviously everyone in every field uses that every day, sure. but it's, it's ho hosting the software, um, you know, has been, I guess in my lifetime game changing. When I think about the software and technology space as a whole, where in businesses like ours, where we're providing services to customers, uh, it's opened up so many new businesses, you know, that, mm -hmm. that couldn't exist without the cloud and hosting. Um, but it's also kind of just makes it so much easier to rapidly de deliver features or um, fix problems for end users because you're fixing it in one place and you don't, they don't have to worry about, you know, deploying all that software into their 
individual local yeah. environment. Yeah. That's it's it's funny because we're in a, in a technology business. I, th that topic is exciting to me, and and I could just tell by your voice and the way the way the speed with which you just were talking about that it's exciting to you too. So I, it's that's a fun outcome of a question like what's the biggest change because that is really it seems obvious, but it really has huge impacts across every single company. It's just very exciting to see. Yeah. And it's it's kind of, I mean, it, it happened so long ago that now I feel it's kind of a day-to-day -day answer, but uh, <laughs> that's, you, know, that, you asked over my career, so that, you yeah, know, yeah. at the very beginning of my career, that's the way everything was. Midway through my career, it was probably, you know, like we talked about Agile, right? It used to be right. there was kind of one way to develop software and right. all these new strategies and approaches came out that also changed, you know, how, how we do that. So there's a lot of ways that the industry has evolved. Now, lately, it's just the plethora of technology options that you have. It, it's almost daunting. You know, there's just so many different um, techniques that you can use or, or languages or things that you can use to, to, de to deliver essentially the same thing. Yeah, yeah. Um, which in some ways is complicated things, but it is interesting to see, see how much that's evolved as well. So what? Um, what? So one last question for you to, through for our conversation here. Um, I'm always interested in in advice. You know, um, you obviously are in a specific part of a business, but obviously think very strategically about the business and the metrics you use and the people that you hire and all that. What What advice would you give to someone starting their career today? Um. I don't know, maybe some of the same advice I got. I think the best advice I got really early in my career, and I don't know that this is applicable for everyone, um, but for me, really, really early, like the first or second year of my career, I got some advice, which was learn 80 to 85% of the job and and move on to the next thing, not necessarily meaning move on to a different job or quit your job, but challenge yourself to not stay in that, um, that space to branch out and ask for additional challenges or additional responsibilities to find ways to insert yourself in other parts of the organization and learn as much as you can about different parts of running a business than just your specific role. Now, I think there's subject matter experts that it's important that they know 100% or 99 and they're constantly learning and developing expertise in that one area. And that I don't mean to, you know, in any way advise people not to take that path because those, I depend on people who I consider subject matter experts and, and, and know that 99 or 100% uh, all day long, they're vital but for me and kind of my personality and what I like to do um, and where I think it's helped me the most is, and that was just getting exposure to a lot of different uh, parts of, you know, if it's IT, then it's all the different pieces of IT like we just talked about, or if it's the business as a whole, you know, understanding enough about the sales function or the marketing function or the finance function or, or whatever so that you can communicate effectively with those people and and you know what their problems are um, 
so that when you're taking those back to technology to you know or wherever your particular domain is you can apply what you what you know about those areas and and some of that learning that you've developed to to whatever your job is at that time um, so that 80 85 percent kind of guidance i got from from that guy a long time ago thank you whoever that was but um that to me was it really forced me to or encouraged me i guess to to do that and to kind of especially early on and not kind of be satisfied with any one particular thing but to keep exploring and uh, and that was valuable that's great advice i you know it's it's excellent advice for someone early in their career and frankly it's excellent advice for someone uh, in the middle or late in their career right to explore and stay curious and that mastery is not, I know a hundred percent. Right. <laughs> so, yeah, um, right. I, I love that. I love that advice. So yes, thank you to whoever told you that. And thank you for <laughs> sharing, for sharing that with us. <laughs> um, and thanks for, thanks for the conversation today. I really appreciate it. And, uh, you gave us a lot to think about. So, um, thanks for agreeing to do the podcast and, uh, and I can't wait for everybody else to hear it. Well, sure. Thanks for having me on. All appreciate right. it. Thanks, Chris. Thanks for listening to the Talent Playbook Podcast with our guest, Chris Gardner. If you want to learn more about Chris, the best place to do that is at the Outmatch website and on the Outmatch blog. He's not much for the socials, although you can see him on LinkedIn. If you'd like to listen to other episodes of the Talent Playbook Podcast, you can do so at iHeartRadio, SoundCloud, Spreaker, YouTube on Libsyn and at the Outmatch website in the now streaming menu. So until next time, this is Jason Ferrara saying thanks for listening. This podcast is a part of the C-Suite Radio Network. For more top business podcasts, visit c-suiteradio.com.